Matthew 26, verse 36 reads like this. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. So he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed and he's saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then Peter came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? He says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, Oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away again and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then when he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See that my betrayer is at hand. Lord, thank you for your word today. Speak to our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated this morning. Hallelujah. We're so glad that you're here. And I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite seasons of the year. It's one of my favorite seasons of the year. You know, I like, uh, I like you know, when you begin to think about the Christmas songs. How many of you like Christmas songs, right? How many of you know it's kind of weird to listen to Christmas songs in the middle of the summer, right? It's when it becomes to like Silent Night and whatever, people kind of look at you funny. But the thing about resurrection songs is they never go out of season. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is always in season. And uh, this morning, we're going to start a brand new series over the next three weeks that I've entitled The Cross of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the events leading up to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Messiah, Jesus. So you want to make sure that you actually don't miss as much as possible over the next few weeks. If you can help it, absolutely help it so that you can stay in tune to what we're doing. We're in a season, what to many has been deemed as Passion Week. It's the events in the scripture that lead up to Christ being crucified. And I want you to know something, that the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is paramount to the gospel. Uh, If you remove the resurrection of Jesus Christ away from the Bible, we have nothing more than some other world religion. You see, the thing that separates Christianity from Buddhism or Hinduism or some other cultic religion is this, is that our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was uh, killed and buried in a tomb, three days later, he rose again. And that's the difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the religions of the world. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a live God. Amen? In fact, I'll tell you, this is unrelated to my message, but I was thinking about something over the last several weeks. 
Some of you will be able to get a witness on this this morning. You know, the, the, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all remember that story? Uh, in the Old Testament, you know, David was supposed to be, and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they took it, and they hid it in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. Dagon was half fish and half flesh. His top of him was man, and his bottom, he looked like a mermaid. And they brought him in, and, and there, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was expected to share this space with Dagon and with the Philistines came in in the morning and Dagon was tumpled over and they'd have to pick him back up and put him back in his place well the Bible says they did that a couple times and on the third time when they came in to find the, the temple of, uh, of Dagon in disarray and the statue of Dagon was falling down and his statue was broken they could not pick it back up again I just thought it was interesting that when the Philistines came into their house to work they had to pick their God up. But when I come into my house of my God and I'm down, he picks me up. Amen. Isn't that something? That is what separates us from the other religions of the world. Our God is not dead. He is alive. I don't know if you know this. I'm not casting stones of whatever tradition you do. But, but this season is not about colored eggs and bunnies. It's about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about him in this season. And so we're, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this. But um, uh, because of the way things were playing, I want to take you tonight, or this morning rather, off of the events that had just happened, which would have been the Last Supper. Jesus would have eaten with his disciples one last time. And it's in this moment where Jesus is there in a very relational setting with the bread and the cup. And Jesus is sitting there with them. They know the hour is coming for Jesus to go to the cross. But yet in this moment, he's taking moments to give intentional destructions and last moments of encouragement. Can you imagine the 12 sitting there around this fellowship table? And Jesus says, and one of you is a devil. Lord, which one of, it, of, which one of us is it? And, of course, we know Jesus, in one gospel, he says, the one who put his hand in the cup, he is the devil. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And so, after that, the, the Bible says that Jesus it came to a point to where he was going to a place to pray. And the Bible says he found himself in a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden that is direct south of the Mount of Olives. It sits in the footbed, if you will, of the Temple Mount. And it is an interesting place because it would have been a place that Jesus would have regularly went to and prayed. It's Gethsemane. Gethsemane is interesting because just the name Gethsemane means olive press. It's a beautiful grove where people would go and they would pick olives. And of course, if you know anything about how they made olives in biblical days and olive oils, that the olives would grow on the tree. Then they would take them and wash them and they would put them in a press and crush them until they could excrete every ounce of oil from them. I always found it was significant that the place where Jesus would go to pray before the crucifixion would be a place called Gethsemane. Now, here's interesting. I was raised for most of my life in South Arkansas. Now, there's a wonder of the world there in South Arkansas. Some of you in this room may know about it. Some of you may not. It is called the Crater of Diamonds. 
It's in a little bitty town called Murfreesboro. You pay an admission fee and you get sifters and shovels and you go out there and you dig for diamonds and, and if you find the diamond, you can keep the diamond. In fact, there have been several world record diamonds found in the crater of diamonds in Murfreesboro, Arkansas. In fact, there are some people who spend their vacation there trying to find pieces of hidden treasure. Do you know why diamonds are so valuable? Diamonds are so valuable because of the process in which they go in to become what they are. Diamonds actually start out as an ugly old piece of coal that are buried underneath the surface of the earth. And the pressure of the earth breaks and molds that diamond into what it's supposed to be. And then, of course, that diamond is taken by a jeweler and it's refined. But that, that, that diamond goes through a process. And what I've found is that things that are valuable are often things that come with great price. Now, here's the next thing that we see when I begin to think about something like that. I also think about pearls. Anybody have a set of real pearl necklace, a real set of pearl earrings or necklace? Anybody? Let me see your hand. Okay, all the thieves, don't look around, okay? We're not robbing nobody today. Pearls are worth a lot of money. And the reason why pearls are worth a lot of money is because of how they're made. See, real pearls are developed on the inside of an oyster. See, oysters, um, they, the inside of their, their structure, there's sand and things that get in there that cause an irritation. And there is a chemical reaction that happens inside of an oyster that causes this lacquer to begin to form on the inside of that, and, and there's a great process. And so the, the oyster is greatly sought after because of its pearl. Now you're understanding why in order to get a necklace just like you wanted, it would take lots and lots of work to find pearls that were uh, suitable to be in the same set. And so we find that that is absolutely the same way. The same process goes with olives. I don't know if you've ever bought oil in the store, but I want you to know something. If you don't already know this, olive oil costs more than Crisco, right? Olive oil costs more than Crisco. In fact, olive oil is probably one of the more costly oils that you can buy in the supermarket. Not only is it one of the most healthy, but it's one of the most costly because of the process in which it goes through. That's why uh, I want to tell you something this morning. You also probably know this, but all olive oil is not created equal. You have virgin, extra virgin, cooking grade, all of this stuff. Well, the extra virgin olive oil is the, the most flavorful. It's, it's that, that first crushing. Then they just keep on and they keep crushing and crushing until they can strain all of it out. But all olive oil is not created equal. Equal, But the reason why the olive oil is precious, and it's a precious commodity, not only in Israel, but around the world, is because of the price and the process in which it goes through. Friends, I want to tell you something this morning. The reason why our redemption is so precious is because of the price and the process that Jesus had to endure to give it to us. You see, man had a problem that he could not solve, and that problem was called sin. Thanks to Adam and Eve, there was a disconnect in the Garden of Eden. And because of that, from that moment forward, man was seeking to cover his own unrighteousness. 
You know, it's interesting to me that when Adam and Eve uh, died spiritually by eating the fruit, the first thing that they did was they went and they found fig leaves. There was an instinct nature for them to go and cover themselves. But when the Lord said, Adam, where are you? And he found him in the garden walking. He discovered that Adam had an awareness of the sin nature because he said, Adam, where are you? He said, I'm, I'm hiding because I'm naked. God said, who told you that you're naked? And guess what happened? God went and he killed an animal. Because even from the onset of the very beginning, the scripture says this, where there is no shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so there had to be life for life. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus knew from the very beginning that his plan in life from the Father was to be the sacrifice for all of humanity. Yet Jesus did the miracles and yes, Jesus caused the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And yes, he walked on water. And yes, he put Malchus's ear back on. Yes, he did all of these things. He raised the dead. Those are things that he did because of who he was. But what he came to do was to pay the price for man to be reconciled back to God. Now, when you look at this, you see all of it begin to come together. Now, Jesus knows. He's got 12 disciples, three of them which are closer to him than others, Peter, James, and John. And they're walking with him. And what does Jesus say? He says, he says, I'm about to go. He says, but when I go, it's expedient to you that I go away because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit to you. And if I don't send the Holy Spirit to you, you're not going to be able to fulfill what I've called you to fulfill. But it's okay because you know, here's what's going to happen. Greater works than these shall you do because I go to my Father. So Jesus is trying to prep them for the fact that one day he's going to leave but some of his disciples begin to get closer to him than others Peter specifically and Jesus begins to tell Peter Peter my hour is, is coming and, I, and my assignment is at hand and, and, and Peter rebukes the Lord and said no you're not going to the cross and that's when the Lord rebuked him he said get behind me Satan and told Peter, he says, you're not talking like my disciple right now. You're talking like one who's influenced by the evil one. You're, you're only, this is what he was telling him, Peter, you're only concerned about your own life. You're not concerned about the plan of God. And Jesus said, I have to go to the cross. And every step, every action, everything that he would do from point A to point B would be to point to the perfect will of God, which was to be the Lamb of God. It's been said that Satan hides uh, wolves and sheep. But our Messiah, our God, hallelujah, he hides lambs, lions and lambs. What you think about that? This meek and lowly Messiah who was born in Bethlehem's manger was going to be one day the lion of the tribe of Judah who would rule in victory. The Bible says he came to his own. His own received him not. The whole regime of the Pharisees they rejected Christ and the Roman rulers they had plots and plans to kill him and Jesus knew that and the hour was coming and he knew that that hour was here and he finds himself at this place of prayer called Gethsemane now let me just give you a little note and nugget of truth right here Jesus is about to go into the most 
crushing moment of his physical life. And before he steps into that moment, he says, I've got to stop and pray. I've got to ask you a question this morning. If Jesus, who is the perfect son of God, needed to pray at his difficult moments in life, how much more do you think you and I need to pray? <laughs> and Jesus said, I've got to go pray. And he invited his disciples into this intimate moment of fellowship. And he says, just, just pray with me, guys. And what happens? He goes through here, and all of a sudden, he finds them asleep. Isn't that what happens a lot of times with the Lord's disciples? He asks us to do something, and an hour later, we we're in spiritually lethargic, and he finds us asleep, not doing what it is we're supposed to do. And Jesus says, hey, can't you pray with me for just one hour? That the spirit is willing, but indeed the flesh is weak. And he tries to tell them that they need to focus on what's going on. And it's in this moment that Jesus prays. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. In the garden, Jesus wrestled with Gethsemane's cup. And this morning, the title of my message is Gethsemane's cup. I, wanna, I want the focus of our attention today to be upon this cup. You know, this is the only place in Scripture that we see Jesus or the disciples or anybody else utter a prayer like this. When Jesus says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. It's the only place we ever see the disciples or Jesus pray that way. And I was looking at this this week with a fresh set of eyes. And I began to realize something at this moment. Jesus was not asking if this was God's will. Jesus was saying, Lord, uh, if you can find it in your plan some way, can we do this a different way? Is there some other way that we can save humanity other than drinking this cup? Friends, I want you to know something. This cup, whether or not it was a physical cup or whether it was a, a, a literal cup or whether or not it was some just metaphorical cup, you have to ask ourselves, what was the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane? And I want to tell you what that cup was. The book of Isaiah tells us it's the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. You see, in the Old Testament, Going forward, there are seasons and indicators that tell us of God's mentality towards sin. In the days of Noah, God's, the cup of God's wrath became full. And he poured it out upon Noah, uh, the people of Noah's day, saving Noah and his family in the ark of safety. And God recreated the entire population of the earth. Um, then the Bible says that he will not flood the earth again in such a way with water, but yet he will renovate the earth by fire. And the Bible tells us that there is coming a day where the fullness of God's wrath will be revealed in a place called hell, a place where there is eternal separation from God forever, where those who reject Christ go. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's wrestling with the Lord over this cup. I want you to see this because Jesus knew at this moment it was so much more than just the physical pain that he would have to endure, but it was the pressure of the hour. Everybody say it was the pressure of the hour. 
I want you to see the pressure of the hour and the pressure that came from the cup. There was a great pressure that came to Christ in this moment. So I want you to notice that pressure is where great things are made. You don't think that Jesus was under pressure in other gospels aside from Matthew. You know what the Bible says? That he collapsed under great pressure. Jesus uh, began to say that he was feeling this moment that he was going through. Luke's gospel records it this way. He sweat, as it were, like great drops of blood. I want you to notice that in this passage of Scripture, there was an internal pressure. Notice what Jesus said. My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. There are some people that think Christians should never have these kind of emotions. But I want to remind you that Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. And this was a serious moment. And even the Son of God was wrestling in his humanity with the task that was going to be in front of him, which was simply drinking the cup of God's wrath to the point it affected his physical body. He was weak in the fact that his flesh was trembling. It's in the scripture. Read it. He sweat as it were great drops of blood. You know that there's a medical phenomenon that does happen. It's very rare where a person can be under so much angst and stress in their body that blood can literally seep from their pores. Now, whether Jesus did that physically or whether this is metaphorically, scholars have argued. I tend to think it's literal, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is it speaks to the internal pressure and the external pressure that Jesus was going through. His soul was sorrowful, even unto death. Now, I'm going to share something with you. Last week, I talked about Peter. Remember when Peter was in prison and he was sentenced to death and he was asleep in the middle of the night? It's because Peter knew he was going to heaven. Jesus had already paid for this. Jesus was getting ready to pay for what Peter was going to have pleasure in. Jesus knew that his soul was going to be in anguish and he was going to have to wrestle in this moment for the cross. You think about it. There's a war going on here. It gives us great insight into the humanity of Christ. See, we forget sometimes That though he was fully God, he was also fully man. He wasn't 50% God, 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. We see the, the pressure of the hour. But here's the second thing, and I think they've got the slides on the screen. Here's the second thing. We see the prayer of the hour. There was a time of prayer. We must never go into the life altering moments without prayer. Notice this passage says Jesus prayed not just once, but twice. May I ask you the question this morning? Have you ever wrestled with God over the will of God? I have. You know, the will of God is not always something we want to do in our flesh, right? But I've learned something, that the will of God is the safest place that you could ever be. 
Jesus wrestled in this moment with his humanity and his divinity. And he he wrestled with it the only way he knew how is he went into the garden and he prayed with God. He invited some of his others to come close and to pray. And they persisted in prayer. Jesus prayed to the point of saying, God, if there's any other way we can do this, let this cup pass. How many of you have ever went to God in prayer before and you said, Lord, I know what you're calling me to do, but is there some other way we can do this? Do I have to give this? Do I have to move my family? Do I have to do this? I mean, none of it may be to the extreme of what Jesus did, but it shows us that Jesus wrestled with the Lord in prayer in this moment. But number three, it also shows us the priority of the hour. Notice that there came a time after humanity and divinity wrestled that Jesus said, you know what, Father, if there's no other way for me to do this, then not my will, but your will be done. You know why there was no other way? Because this is how it had to happen. The, set, the, the sinless Messiah had to become the sacrifice For all of mankind. Jesus knew that there was coming a moment. Where he would be crucified on a Roman cross. You have to understand he knew the whips and the chains. He knew because he was a man of the word. He knew because he was the word. The prophecies pointed to the fact that he would be like a lamb led to a slaughterhouse. But in Jesus' wrestling, the Lord said, yes. Aren't you glad he said yes this morning? I don't know if you've ever watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Uh, You know, it's gory. And I still believe that as great of a movie as it was, Hollywood didn't even do justice of what it really would have been like to be beaten beyond recognition. But in that moment, Jesus wrestled and he wrestled and he came to a point and he said, God, if it's not going to happen a different way, let let your will be done in my life. And it was shortly after that that what happened was is that Judas shows up, betrays the Lord, and he's taken off to trial with Pilate. We're going to learn about that next week. But I want to talk to you about the significance of, of the the cup and the priority of this cup. It shows us that the will of God, while it may not always be pleasant, it's the best. Notice this. It was in this garden where Jesus decided, God, if it's your will for me to drink this cup, I'm going to drink it. That's where we get the most beautiful The most beautiful passage in the prophet Isaiah. Many of you might know this. You don't have to turn there on the screen this morning. You can just follow in your Bible. But Isaiah 53, verse number 3, it starts out like this. says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it says, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs 
He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That's where we get this beautiful passage where we figure out that Isaiah is looking through the lens of prophecy and he sees the suffering Messiah and how Jesus will ultimately take the lashes on his back for the salvation of all humanity. But the passage doesn't end there. And this is what I wanted to close with this morning as we come to a time of prayer. Isaiah 53 Verse number 10 says this. You ready? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. One translation says this. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Notice this. For by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. What does this passage say? What this passage is saying about Gethsemane's cup was that Jesus, though he did not in his flesh want to do this, his soul said yes. His spirit said yes. I love the way Paul's epistle writes and he says, with the joy set before him, he endured the cross despised the shame I'm here to tell you this morning he didn't have to but he did and what does the passage tell us why is it so significant why is this so important that Jesus drank this cup in Gethsemane's garden I want to tell you why this morning the reason why it's so significant is because Jesus drank the cup we don't have to